is why Jews are so worried and so anxious all the time. My favorite one is one that says that you have to shoo away a mother hen before you collect her eggs. Oh. It's like tragic and also... Bad, but yeah. I guess, yeah. Humane? It is more humane. Like, don't look. <laughs> don't look. I'm going to eat it, but don't look. Don't look. Hey everybody, welcome back to Call Your Monster. My name is Adam. I am a writer living in Los Angeles who loves spooky Jewish things. Hi, my name is Jen. I am also a writer living in this city of angels and possibly demons. And I'm also Jewish and I like spooky things. So today we're going to be talking about Clifot. And there's like a dozen different ways to say it, but we're going to stick with Clifot, which is kind of a catch-all term for all things evil or impure. So the direct translation is Clifot uh, means husks or shells or peels. They were first mentioned in this book called the Zohar, which is a foundational text of Kabbalah. And just as a heads up, we're going to talk about Kabbalah a little bit now because it's kind of crucial to our conversation of Clifot. But we're going to be getting into much more depth down the line in this podcast because it relates to a lot of things as spooky and weird. But for right now, we're going to give you, you know, brief overview of stuff. But the Zohar is a foundational text of Kabbalah, which is a study in and belief and practice of Jewish mysticism. So the Zohar was written by this guy, Moses de Leon, in Spain in the 1200s, even though he claimed that it was based on liturgy from Shimon Bar Yochai, who was a sage in the second century, but most scholars are pretty skeptical of that because of the fact that his wife and daughter claimed that he forged it and he was the one who wrote it. Um, but it was used as a legitimate text as early as 50 years after its publication by a lot of different Spanish and Italian scholars. So the Zohar says when it's talking about Clifod and when it's introducing the idea of Clifod is that um, in Genesis, it says that God created the sun and the moon as luminaries in the sky. And there's this thing called defective spelling, which is essentially looking at uh, versions of the word written in Hebrew with fewer letters, as opposed to the full spelling, which has additional vavs or shins in it. Uh, so the Zohar says that the sun and moon were created as luminaries in the original text, which is me'orot, uh, which means light. But in the Zohar iteration of it, it looks at it without that additional vav. So it says me'erot, which is curse. Uh, so it says, to put it all together, that God created the sun and the moon as curses in the sky. So there's this theory that when the moon diminished its light in the night sky, it made room for curses or darkness, which became known as the klifot. Interestingly, the Zohar claims that this moment of the curses breaking into the world was when Lilith, Adam's first wife, appears, but Lilith is often credited as having been created alongside Adam, which happened several days later. So there's a little bit of confusion on that. Well, Lilith is basically a catch-all for all bad things in Judaism. That's where they're coming from here. Yeah. So eventually, these various Clifot were given individual names that let them run counter to the various Sephirot, which are essentially the ten different ways that God presents themselves to humanity, wisdom, understanding, etc. We're not going to name all of the different Clifot, but uh, we will post on Instagram a diagram of the Tree of Life and its corresponding Tree of Death, so far as the Sephirot and Clifot are concerned. But the Tree of Death exists in this place called Sitra Achra, which is the side of impurity. So think of it this way. If there is a Sephirot called Kether, which is the concept of unity, 
then its corresponding klifa, which is thaumiel, is all about separation. So klifot are essentially the shells that exist around the various aspects of holiness, and it's really interesting because in this way there's sort of a divine purpose to the klifot. They essentially concentrate divinity. So if God separates their divinity into ten different pieces, the klifot are what keep those lines distinct. So there are two types of klifot. There's klifot hatmeot, which is the irredeemable. It can only be redeemed in its own destruction. And the klifot hatmeot are the source of life for all non-kosher life. So pigs, fruit-bearing trees that are less than three years old, shellfish. They can be interpreted from Ezekiel's description of the throne of God. He says, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, uh, and a brightness was about it. So the whirlwind, the great cloud, and the fire are all the klifot hatmeot, the irredeemable klifot. But the brightness that was all around it is the klifot noga, which is redeemable klifot. So there are seven of them, and they are capable of being saved. They're the source of life for all kosher animals, as well as the source of all like mundane activities and thoughts. Um, and they have to be freed through the universal following of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah. Yes, you might have thought that there were 10 commandments, there's 613. And it's said when all of them are redeemed, we'll enter the messianic age. And it's this idea of the klifot hatmeot and klifot noga uh, is similar to how there are two types of tumah or impurity. There's the ritual impurity and the moral impurity. So we know where generally they came from and how they're first mentioned but they kind of gained popularity not through the zohar but through the writings of isaac luria who was a rabbi born in 1534 his father was uh, an ashkenazi jew his mother was a sephardi jew who fled the spanish inquisition and his birth was foretold to his father by the prophet elijah who specifically mentioned that he would deliver the jews from their klifot isaac luria was kind of a weird dude uh, lived completely in isolation in the Nile from the ages of 22 to 29, never visited his family or his wife during that time except on Shabbat, and even then he was almost completely silent, and when he wasn't silent he spoke in Hebrew, um, and that was it. But he did a lot of very interesting things with theology, and he developed the idea of tzimtzum, which is kind of this idea rooted in the inner turmoil of people who had just been excised from Spain. So Jews were grappling with the idea that a just God could possibly let this happen. So if God is all good and God exists everywhere, how can bad things happen? Which is a legitimate question and something that I think a lot of religions grapple with. So Tzimtzum attempted to take on this idea of exiling. So essentially, this idea is that before there was creation, God was everywhere. But when they saw fit to create the worlds, they pulled all of their radiance into a single point, which kind of sounds like the Big Bang. And then they the, created these vessels, which are the sephirot, uh, which are essentially containers for all of their divinity. But the fifth vessel, which was the vessel for God's strength, wasn't strong enough, and it shattered, and it had to be rebuilt. But when this fifth vessel was shattered, all of those pieces dripped down into uh, the space of creation, this giant void, but they still had some of this divine light. And when that divine light existed in this void, it created klifot which needed to consume the divine light to exist, but needed the divine light to exist so that they could feed on it. So that's why they surround and remain connected to the sephirot. And I really like this because it paints God as some sort of archetypal hero. God had to exist, attempt to change, failed, lost himself, and then brought himself all back together, like irrevocably changed. And since Judaism believes that all humanity carries the spark of the divine, they also carry that shell of the klifot with them. So this story, this archetypal hero story, is something that plays out 
in our own lives. And it also carries with it that evil isn't an invention of man, like with, you know, the apple in the Garden of Eden, like it, it, evil is not humanity's fault, but instead it's a cosmic entity unto itself. Another way of looking at it, I think, is related to Hasidism, which is inner will versus external will. So if a guy goes to work, that's external will. But the reason he does it so that he can make money, so that he can do whatever he actually wants to do, that's his internal will. So the klifot are the external will of God and exist in order to better further the internal will of the sefirot. So you can't really fight klifot because they're this very, like, they're in everybody. They're not really a monster monster. They're just the, the concept of evil and not even evil in that same sense. But essentially, in order to find the divine within ourselves, we have to combat klifot that exists there as well. So we need to take a look at what each of these klifot mean and how we can remove those elements from our life. So if there's a sefirot for love, then there's a klifot for, let's say, smothering love, something that, you know, consumes something else so much and becomes so fixated on it that it squashes it out of existence. So we need to learn moderation, we need to learn boundaries, essentially. So something along those lines is a way that you continually combat Clifote in your day-to-day -day life. Which also makes sense, to, um, again, we're going to get into Kabbalah later, but so much of Kabbalah is about balance to everything in life. And, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around the concept of God, but so much of Kabbalah is about just understanding God as like this energy and this presence keeping balance in the universe. I think that's nice. Yeah. I like that, yeah. And I think sort of one of the things, one last thing that I'll say is this quote by this occultist writing in the like late 1800s, early 1900s. His last name, it's Mueller Sternberg. I mean, he has this quote that feels very much attuned to the idea that the Clifford sort of created themselves. And it's, since the demons aren't summoned anymore, they are coming by themselves. I, I like it because it feels like, you know, you don't have to call upon evil. Evil exists within you no matter what evil is everywhere and it's just sort of a question of what we do with it since it's always there i'm going to talk about who else is evil uh what does evil look like in other cultures i mean obviously i feel like I, i've got to start with the big one the devil or satan in christianity We'll spend some time on him. We won't get too, too granular with him because he's literally everywhere in Western culture, obviously. But in Christianity, Satan, the artist formerly known as Lucifer, is a fallen angel cast from heaven after rebelling against God. He is the embodiment of evil and clearly a foil to God who represents all things good and holy and righteous, etc. Satan has been depicted in numerous ways across pop culture, the Bible, art, etc. In Christianity, the serpent in the Garden of Eden is attributed to Satan. He ranges from being depicted as a serpent to being depicted as a terrifying red satyr-esque monster with horns, bat wings, and a pointy tail to the hunky emo angel of Milton's Paradise Lost. And I am just going to take a moment here to talk about my favorite nugget of art history. Uh, which has to do with a 19th century statue of Lucifer that was basically banned for being too sexy. So in 1848, if you haven't heard this story, strap in, I love it. In 1848, the Belgian sculptor Guillaume Gifs presented a sculpture of Lucifer for the city of Liege's St. Paul's Cathedral. But this was no ordinary commission. 
this guy, this artist, was uh, supposed to be replacing the controversial sculpture of Lucifer that his brother Joseph had produced six years earlier. So this original sculpture basically showed a handsome, near-nude Lucifer. He's almost like cherubic looking. Um, he's sitting in repose, looking handsome, and this statue is considered a bad influence for churchgoers. So it was removed after only one year. So basically, the church brought on this guy to replace his brother's work, but the best part is the second Lucifer statue is arguably, but kind of objectively sexier. Like, look oh, him up. He's 100% he sexier. a hunk. He is, like, really flaunting for the camera. There's a lot of sex appeal. He's really working it. We should absolutely... I don't know where this belongs on a Jewish folklore podcast's Instagram feed, but... Oh, no, we're going to put the tree of life and the tree of death superimposed over his abs. I love that. He can have a tattoo of it. Oh, yeah, there this we go. It feels very sacrilegious. This also feels like we're putting a lot of confidence in my Photoshop ability. <laughs> yes. I actually think the worse the Photoshop is, the better in this case. So bringing it back, the word Satan actually does appear in the Torah but not as a proper noun. So it's not Satan as in the devil in Christianity. It's used either as a title. So in the book of Job, book of Job keeps coming back around. Um, in the book of Job, the word Satan or Satan is used to describe a subordinate of God who tests man's righteousness. Uh, Satan also appears in the Torah as a verb, meaning to oppose or accuse. So... The way Christianity depicts the devil and evil is probably influenced by Zoroastrianism in the post-Torah years of the Babylonian exile. So this is 586 to 538 BCE. And during this time, actually in late Judaism even, Satan began to take on this role as sort of a foil to God. And that's pretty much how we see him in Christianity. So of course, in the New Testament, Satan is pretty much the main antagonist. He is the opposite of all things godly or Christ-like associated with evil, sin, temptation, sexuality, demons, pretty much a catch-all. And once again, it's largely accepted that the snake who tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was actually Satan in disguise. And this original sin of Adam and Eve giving in to Satan and taking a bite of the apple is this blight on humanity to this day predisposing us to sin, which sort of is very different from the Kabbalistic understanding of evil in the world, which is not necessarily our fault as humans. So in Christianity, again, Satan's seen as the king of demons. He rules over this fiery underworld of hell, and which in itself, this divide between heaven and hell is a major distinction between Christianity and Judaism. Similarly, in Islam, we have Iblis or Shaitan. So sort of like Lucifer in Christianity, the original name of this entity was Azazel. Um, who was an angel cast to earth for challenging God and specifically not bowing down to Adam. Interestingly, the Sufi mystics have sort of a kinder view of Azazel. He wasn't arrogant for bowing down to Adam, according to their view. He just didn't want to bow down to anyone but God. Honestly, I respect that. I get it. If God's your boy. So that's one view of Azazel. But just like Satan, Iblis and Shaitan are often associated with the snake, um, or possibly a peacock who appeared in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve. But there is a point in Islamic lore where Iblis and Shaitan sort of branch off from one another. Iblis, at least for the Sufis, Iblis sort of becomes this complex character who represented piety and sacrifice, whereas 
Shaitan is more of this general embodiment of evil. And like Satan, he tempts people to sin, he lords over lesser evil forces, but he's not necessarily as all-powerful as Satan. In fact, some people consider him to be the most powerful jinn, but not a fallen angel. And there's not a clear depiction of him in the same way. You know, there's no red guy running around with horns and bat wings and a tail, but he's sometimes depicted as a stone pillar or wall, interestingly. And then, a little bit different, not a clear one-to-one for pure evil, but in Hinduism, there are evil beings like the Asuras, who can definitely fuck you up. Uh, One example is Rahu, who's yet another snake, who is seen as swallowing the sun or moon, causing eclipses. He became immortal by drinking divine nectar and also appears in Buddhist writings and art. In Maori mythology, you have Firo, who is an evil god, sort of like we were talking about in the last uh, episode with elemental beings and just sort of humans grappling with these higher powers, the sun, the moon, the water, all of these things. Firo is the brother and antithesis of the light god, Tane. Both of them were born from Papa, the earth, and Rangi, the sky. But for a while, uh, these brothers were kind of unhappy. It was a little crowded for everybody so Tane wanted to separate their parents by forcing the sky upward and everybody agreed except for Firo who wanted to remain in darkness because he's a little emo guy Uh, so angered by Tane's actions Firo became this embodiment of darkness and evil and this dissension and the separation of the earth and sky was sort of the moment in which evil is first supposed to have entered the world so Firo kind of sulking went to the underworld when he was there was supposedly responsible for humanity's wickedness and devoured souls upon arrival to the underworld. He was basically doing this so he could bulk up and be strong enough to break back out of the netherworld and eat everything. Like a very scary immortal Pac-Man. So this guy also is... (laughs) Are you you proud of yourself? I'm very proud of myself for that one. Uh, This guy, because he's he's a bad dude, he, he also brings diseases. He's a patron saint of thieves. But... There is a cheat code. If you don't want to be eaten by scary immortal Pac-Man, you've got to get cremated because he can't get any strength from ashes. No barbecue for him. No barbecue for Firo. Um, a little bit different, but Loviatar is a Finnish goddess of death, pain, and disease. So she's not exactly pure evil, but she's sort of on the note of these witch or hag-like scary female entities who are sort of lumped in with all the bad things in the world. She's the black sheep of her immortal family. She's the wickedest child. Um, She was knocked up by the east wind and had these nine sons who each carried horrible diseases. Consumption, colic, gout, rickets, ulcers, scab, cancer, plague, and a final son who is so dreadful that we don't even have a clear record of his name. And she's also another instance of evil being associated with snakes because some people believe that the wind who impregnated Loviatar was a serpentine sea monster. We got another sea monster here named Iku Terso. So there's actually a lot of interplay between some of these myths, obviously, and what we spoke about last week with the Leviathan um, and the behemoth. Learned how to say it. Uh, (laughs) It's just, listen, guys, I do a lot of reading. Clearly, I don't speak about these things enough, or I haven't until now, so... Be kind if I, mispro- if I mispronounce anything. Words are made up. So, uh, segue back into evil. In Egyptian folklore, we have Apophis, who is the god of chaos. So, like a lot of these entities, 
he's sort of a catch-all for anything bad. Darkness, destruction, chaos, evil. He's credited for unexplained darkness, like some of these other entities, um, such as solar eclipses, storms, earthquakes. Like the snake or Satan in the Garden of Eden, he is often depicted as this giant serpent with tightly compressed coils. He is powerful AF. OP compared to most Egyptian gods, and he's got this full-ass army of demons at his beck and call. This guy is basically undefeatable, and he is a rival of the sun god Ra. It's said that each time Ra sailed his barge to the underworld, Apophis would attack and try to prevent the sunrise, which didn't work, but I admire the persistence nonetheless. If at first you don't unseat Ra, try, (laughs) try again. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like Firo, Apophis or Apophis is said to feast upon the dead as well as the living. So to prevent this, the dead were buried with spells that would protect them from him. He's also very similar to the Egyptian god Set, who's also a god of war and chaos and storms, but Set's got a little bit more range to him. He's sometimes depicted as benevolent, unlike this guy who is pure evil. He's a multi-hyphenate. You know, he's, he's got layers to him. Apophis, Apophis does not. Um, interestingly, Apophis was also not, even though he supposedly, you know, kind of dates back to the beginning of time, he's not mentioned until the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. So it's possible that he was sort of born out of the chaos at the end of the Old Kingdom. And bringing it back to something that is maybe a little close, more closely related to Jewish depictions of evil, Lamashtu was a Mesopotamian demon goddess who's actually kind of similar to Lilith in her depiction. And again, we'll get to Lilith later. Don't you worry. I can't wait. I feel like every episode is a cliffhanger. We're like, <laughs> hold on, we're getting to Lilith. My whole life is a cliffhanger for Lilith. Uh, Lamashtu, like Lilith, preyed on childbearing women and newborns brought disease, caused miscarriages, haunted dreams. And as with Lilith, people wore amulets to protect against her. But TBH, Lamashtu, not as hot as Lilith. She's lion-headed and bird-clawed, so kind of a reverse Griffith, in a way. Weirdly, her enemy was the plague-bringer Pazuzu. However, some cultures considered Lamashtu to actually be their protector and displayed talismans seemingly honoring her in their homes. And... Similarly, more folklore from that part of the world. Uh, We've got Ariman from Zoroastrianism. This was a deity of chaos, strife, confusion, and disappointment. He's also known as Angramanyu, which translates to a destructive and evil spirit. And he is seen as the enemy of Spentamanyu, who's the good spirit. Ariman's principal attribute is Druj, the lie, which embodies greed, envy, and wrath. And he's sort of considered, he is considered a predecessor to Satan. Satan the prequel? Satan the prequel, exactly. That's Ariman for you. Satan the early years. (laughs) Love it. Obviously, in contemporary pop culture, there there are no shortage of stories about the battle between good and evil. That's at the heart of a lot of stories we tell. Of course, you have this notion of the Faustian bargain, which stems also from German legend and was popularized perhaps by the two-part 19th century play. And then, of course, you have these giant fantasy epic series like Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, which are very, a little bit more obviously rooted in Christian and Catholic conceptions of evil and the devil because their authors were pretty devout guys. And, of course, we've got Star Wars where evil is personified by the Sith and the dark side, and we see how easy it is to succumb to darkness and that evil impulse. 
I actually, I would disagree that uh, the Sith are fundamentally evil. I think it's closer to the Sephiroth Clifford mm. mm-hmm. debacle where there is, in, in the light side of the Force, everything is just very much chill and you don't really feel much of like peaks or valleys of emotions. Whereas with the Sith, you feel only peaks and valleys of emotion. So there's very little balance associated with it. Yes. Yes, it's true. Well, in my point of view, the Jedi are evil. Every time I go to the beach, I have to rail about how much I hate sand. On that note, (laughs) terrible segues today. Um, We've also got, you know, one of my unfortunate faves, Harry Potter. Obviously, you see this similar struggle between good and evil. Similar to the Clefote. For Harry, he's sort of constantly at war within himself. There's this evil impulse that comes, that was not his fault, that he's constantly wrestling with and trying to seek balance, or seek to balance out. And the antidote to evil is love and acceptance, which is ironic considering J.K. Rowling, but I digress. Get her. Um, also in Harry Potter, of course, evil is associated with snakes, or snakes are associated with evil. And if you want to go here, in Western media, Nazis are pretty often used as a shorthand for just pure evil. And not just in World War II movies, but also Indiana Jones, which also includes snakes, but that's more or less a coincidence, I think. I don't know if Indiana Jones is fighting evil and he hates snakes. You know, they're sort of everywhere in Western pop culture as this, just again, pure embodiment of evil because what they did was so heinous. And so they're sort of the perfect depiction of pure bad. Well, and I think like, I don't know, I feel like going off of that concept of the pure bad, I do think that is that is a distinction a little bit between, and I think some of the other, you know, examples that you gave of these, you know, evil entities not necessarily being fully evil, maybe they're associated with death, maybe they're associated with, you know, deep waters or, or something like that, or like they consume souls to fight, you know, a sky god, but they consume souls to exist. Like, I think that idea of things not being pure good or pure evil mm-hmm. feels much more like a depiction of life. And I feel like that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious as to if there's a delineation between the religions that treat their mythos as humanity or as parable. And I think Judaism is the former. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening to us talk about Clifot, Sephiroth, uh, and Sexy Sexy Satan. No, sexy, sexy Lucifer. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, just stay safe out there. Stay safe. Stay sexy. Watch out for snakes and sand. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at callyourmonsterpod, where we'll have a glossary of words we use this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week.